Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And this, I think, yeah, this is the podcast where we give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for everyone. Uh, We get those tools and the context straight from the smartest people on earth and all these action steps you can take uh, to support those people in their missions. And which people are we talking about? Well, we've had scientists so, on. It's a long list. We've had, we've had doctors and nurses, journalists, engineers, farmers, politicians, activists. It's so many words. Educators, business yep. leaders, astronauts. We had a reverend at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I had a big drink of water while you read that. It's a long list. We're, we're at a hundred, list. 101 episodes plus some special ones that are in there. I mean, wow. wow. Um, we've also got uh, a newsletter. You can join tens mm-hmm. of thousands of other smart people and you can subscribe to it. At our free weekly newsletter, sums up all the news you missed this week and the action steps you can take to uh, fight the good fight. Brian, tell me about where they can... Just do that at importantnotimportant.com. Yeah, that's helpful information. Where can they uh, send us feedback and cookies, should they prefer? Cookies, please, but also questions are fine. Uh, Uh You can do that uh, Uh at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com or on Twitter at importantnotimp. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got a great little review one day. Somebody sent it to me recently that said paraphrase i have it written down uh in his email but it said uh, this is like uh it's like how i built this meets tim ferris except it's uh w- through science and saving the world and i was like god that's a that's a pretty good review i'll take that that's great who did you yeah. pay to say that <laughs> so much it's really we ha- good we have no money left yeah i mean we never had any oh man brian what a great episode this week uh this episode uh is featuring another for some reason Another incredible human who has decided to give up their regular life to try and mm-hmm. fix this thing that's happening outside. I guess it's still called democracy. Tell tell them about our Apparently. guest. Well, uh, her name is Dr. Mm-hmm. Hiral Tipperneni. Mm-hmm. She's an emergency room physician. Check. She's a mom. Check. She's an immigrant. Check. A cancer research advocate. Check. And uh, yeah, she's taking all of that and trying to bring uh, uh, it and, and her expertise and her empathy to Congress. I would say the only the only feasible way her incumbent measures up to her in any way is if you take all of her qualifications and you you take away like what they are and you yeah. take his qualifications for being corrupt and you just like if it's just basic math, he is as corrupt as she is just infinitely qualified to bring, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, like we'll talk about expertise and, and, and empathy and decision-making skills. Uh, so in that way, they're equal, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you, if you just do it that way. Anyways, what, what's the great uh, baseball statistic, wins above replacement value, something like that, war, they call it. Basically, like, mm-hmm. Brian, if you were a right fielder, your war would be how much better are you than the average right fielder, and that's your war calculation. And right. this would just be off the scale. So, anyways, the charts. Uh, let's go talk to Hero. Let's do it. All right. Our guest today is Hero Tipperneni, and together we're asking, how the hell did all of America end up in the emergency room? Uh, Dr. Tipperneni, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Quinn and Brian. I appreciate the chance to speak with you both. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, we'll, thank we'll you. See how Seriously, that goes. we're very, very excited to have you on. Um, <laughs> Let us, uh, let us begin, uh, Doctor, by j- just telling everybody uh, a, little, a little quick intro of who, who you are and what you do. I am Dr. Hirol Tipperneni, and uh, I'm the Democratic nominee for Congress in Arizona 6. But in my life prior to running for public service, um, I uh, was a 
ER physician, an emergency medicine physician, worked clinically for many years, and then also spent uh, almost nine years working in cancer research advocacy. So uh, my background is medicine and science, and I come from, you know, uh, experience of serving others and solving complex problems to make uh, a positive impact in people's lives, which is really what I think we need more of in Congress and in D.C. So here I am. I was going to say, what of all of those qualifications makes you feel like you you can help? It's crazy. It seems so silly uh, <laughs> that any of those things would just automatically be a major upgrade to the current situation. Reminder for everyone out there, and, and uh, so you know also, Doctor, uh, our goal on this show is to provide some, uh, we're going to provide some quick context for our topic, and then we're going to get into some very action-oriented questions and and uh, and anything else and everything else that everyone out there can do to uh, help support you and and your mission. That sound great? That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so, Hero, we like to start with one important question to set the tone for this fiasco. Um, <laughs> instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> well, I, I don't think there's ever been a moment um, in our political history, at least since I've been alive, that it is more clear that we need more physicians and scientists in D.C. I mean, we find ourselves figuratively and literally in this state of crisis, right? And uh, it is an emergency. And who better than to jump in and, and start solving these complex problems than an experienced emergency physician that has been uh, in those situations having to make rapid, uh, you know, fact-based, data-driven decisions, quickly, decisively intervening, making a difference, stabilizing situations, and, you know, solving the larger complex problem at hand. Uh, that, we need more of that. We, that's what we need right now on so many fronts, whether it's addressing this public health crisis of this pandemic, uh, the resulting economic uh, recession that we're in, addressing our climate crisis, uh, which continues to um, show its uh, rear its ugly head constantly with these wildfires and uh, extremes of temperature. And, you know, obviously other things continue to rage on as well. It's not like the opioid crisis has gone away. It's not like uh, gun violence has stopped. It's not like, uh, you know, economic inequities or educational inequities have gone away. Uh, there, are, there are emergencies all around us. So absolutely, I say bring in the professionals, bring in the ER docs, bring in the scientists, bring in the folks who appreciate a data-driven approach and can be decisive leaders. And let's get to work. Uh, again, it all seems it all seems just so like logical. every every <laughs> guest we have. So every incredibly intelligent guest we have talking, it's like, how is this not the norm already? How is this not already? Yeah, <sighs> it's just like hero <laughs> should just be in charge of everything. Please everything, take it over. Um, I mean, why not? Dictator for the day. All right, so uh, just some quick uh, context for for our story here. Um, our wonderful guest seeks to represent Arizona's 6th Congressional District. Is that correct, uh, Hero? That is correct. Yep. It's Arizona's 6th Congressional District. Yes. And that's, uh, part of the area around Phoenix, including Scottsdale, some other suburbs. Uh, I believe it's about 750,000 constituents. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's just shy of 800,000 and it is, uh, North Phoenix. And as you said, the Northeast Valley suburbs, Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, Cave Creek, Carefree, and Fountain Hills. Awesome. And I believe I used to have all these memorized and now my children uh, badger me about them. I believe that's more people than f three states, four states, something like that. I think it's like Alaska, Vermont, Wyoming, something. There's a few under a million. 
Um, so, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, I think, so, yeah definitely Montana and I think Wyoming. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't know the other ones. Definitely. But, yeah. And D.C., of course, which should be a state. Different conversation. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it seems like your district has been redrawn a couple times, which is what happens with the census often, uh, clearly, over the past 20 years. And mm-hmm. um, hopefully we can make that a little more a little more fair uh, again everywhere after 2020. The last three representatives have been Republicans. The last five presidential elections uh, have uh, leaned red, but seems like decreasingly so. Here, our, our listeners know that we, we are we're pretty picky about which elected officials we talk to mm-hmm. and, and hopeful elected officials. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, uh, again, our, our listeners know that um, Arizona is not only, well, potentially going blue in a couple of weeks, not just for you, but hopefully overall. But mm-hmm. um, Arizona is hot and it's getting hotter. And uh, uh, for example, in 2018, I think it was something like 120 or 130 days over triple digits. Mm -hmm. Um, Cities like Phoenix uh, and again, like Los Angeles or places in the Middle East, they're they're making moves to provide uh, cooling options for folks that don't have any, um, especially at night when our bodies need to cool down. Mm -hmm. Um, That in itself is becoming harder, becoming more dangerous. But Arizona is actually really you know, I think going to be interestingly the the tip of the sword per se when we talk about climate mitigation and adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important to have local leaders and national leaders uh, who are going to help listen and learn and also not be afraid to try and enact policies um, to both fight this climate crisis, but again, understand that it's important to, at the same time, to try to keep areas like uh, Phoenix and the surrounding areas as livable as possible. And obviously, also, we're all still locked in our living rooms. There's a Mm -hmm. lot going on. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it seems like it's the perfect moment, and you seem like the perfect person uh, to have as as someone who has spent so much of their career, uh, you know, trying to provide solutions in a data-driven and, at the same time, empathetic way. Um, So, again, our question today is, how the hell did... Uh, basically all of America end up in the emergency room. Hero, uh, this isn't actually your first shot at, at a congressional seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just again, for everyone else's reference, and this was stunning to me, I knew the surface level of this, but not all of it, which mm-hmm. is that your opponent, the incumbent, uh, admitted to 11 ethics violations mm-hmm. uh, related to improper spending and other financial Yikes. rule breaking, just a guard, garden variety, agreed Correct. to a $50,000 fine, is still in office, uh, and quoting the House Ethics Committee, uh, violated House rules, the Code of Ethics for Government Service, federal laws, and other applicable standards. Uh, and they said his testimony lacked credibility. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what it is about our perfectly functioning democracy, Hurl, <laughs> that keeps you working so diligently to try to become an officially elected part of it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, so... I'm going to give you um, sort of the, the basic core uh, example, right, of what, what mm-hmm. motivates me to run, okay? Mm-hmm. So I saw a woman in the emergency department many years back, and, and this is one patient of many that has a similar story, but uh, she had felt a lump in her breast, right, four months prior to when she came to the emergency department, but she was an hourly wage worker. She had no healthcare benefits, right? She uh, did not have health insurance. She could not access the healthcare system. She uh, could not afford to take time off of work where she didn't have paid sick leave or anything like that. And so she just kind of ignored this lump that she felt in her breast for four months. 
um, until she, mm-hmm. and she was in her early forties. Okay. Um, she, finally she presents to the ER when I see her, the reason she comes into the ER is because she has this like oozing wound on her breastbone, right on her sternum. And it's, it, oh. she can see it on her skin. And so she comes in for that. And as I start examining her and I start asking questions, I find out about this lump that she felt prior. And once we start uh, doing some tests on her, we realize her body is riddled now with cancer, riddled. And that, <sighs> that wound on her chest wall is a, metas- a metastatic lesion that is now eroded through her sternum. 42 years old wow. and six, less than six weeks later, she was dead. I mean, this is America. This is our country. I, the infinite resources we have. We are, you know, supposedly the, uh, you know, that shining city on the hill, right? We are the, the, the envy mm. of the whole planet. But we can't keep people like her alive because she doesn't have an insurance card because of our broken healthcare system. And until that healthcare system is repaired and actually functional, I'm going to be in this fight. I'm going to be in this fight because I have that perspective. I've seen it. I've seen the eyes of people who've struggled. I mean, when you have a parent come in and they're tearful and they have a child who is sick and they're crying for two reasons. They're crying because number one, they're worried about their kid and they think, oh my gosh, I waited too long to bring them in. But they're also crying because mm-hmm. they have no idea how they're going to afford any care that this child is going to need. And they, sure. they are anticipating already being homeless and broke and not being able to put food on the table. I mean, but yeah, this is a travesty. I mean, this is happening in our nation every single day. And the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, helped us Mm -hmm. take one giant leap forward, right? We didn't get to the finish line, but we took one giant leap forward in the right direction. 23 million Americans are now within our healthcare system with insurance, with access to healthcare because of the ACA. And we are right now in this emergency crisis where that very safety net is trying is is being ripped away. We have, I mean, you guys know this, I'm sure that there is a case going in front of SCOTUS, right, in front of Supreme Court that is led by this administration and uh, several attorneys general from uh, several uh, GOP states that are looking mm-hmm. to fully repeal the ACA, which would leave 23 million people uninsured. But on top of that, let's be very clear. One out of every two Americans has a pre-existing condition. And those folks would either be uninsurable or have astronomical rates that they couldn't afford. I mean, and this is in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's unconscionable. Right, it's before, almost unconscionable to like imagine any human being would ever push for this. Sure. And and I believe we've gotten, and I imagine because of the number of people who, or, or the, the demographics of the people who've been affected, and especially the people who've very, really suffered and, and further faced uh, higher mortality averages. Uh, but th- I think there's, what do we have to, what is today, the October 6th, we're at like seven and a half million uh, diagnoses for, for COVID, which right. is, you know, seven Pre- and a half million new right. pre-existing conditions. You're um, that's right. not seven and a half million, probably not seven and a half million new Americans with pre-existing conditions, but for a lot of them, it's another layer to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure for a number of them, it's, it's maybe their first one. Mm-hmm. And, um, guess what? <laughs> you know, there's a lot more coming. And yeah. if you strike down the ACA, it's it's going to be on. It's I, I it feels incredible. It feels like so many people have forgotten what it was like until that day and whatever it was, 2010, when when you when preexisting conditions weren't covered. Right. Well, and and realize too that we still didn't like 
get to the finish line, right? We still have millions of, er- oh, of God, Americans, no. like just prior to this pandemic, we still had millions of Americans, uh, families all across this nation that still either were under or uninsured, right? And, but we've seen the benefit of the ACA. We've seen the, the benefit, not just to, you know, outcomes and people being able to stay healthier and seek primary care and, and focus on some mm-hmm. preventative care and things like that. But we've also seen the economic benefit. So it's really important that we realize there's a human toll, there's an economic toll. And the sooner we've, you know, imprint that uh, inextricable link in our minds and understand that, I mean, this pandemic, for example, right, it has laid bare all the fragility of our healthcare and economic systems. And it's shown how one is directly connected to the other. I mean, as soon as the pandemic hit, not only when people got sick and they lost their jobs because they couldn't go to work or because they, mm-hmm. you know, were in the hospital or they just were too ill to, to work, but all the people that lost their jobs because businesses closed down and, and you know, production of things stopped and so forth. All of those folks, uh, we have seen how the healthcare and the economic systems are so tightly linked. And if we don't take some decisive action to strengthen our healthcare system and address these economic inequities, we are, we're not going to find our way out of this. Even once the, the virus is eradicated, we're, we're going to be back to sure. square one. So we can't go back. We have to learn from this and do so much better. And, and I think it's important to know, and, and th- thank you for, for that context. It, it, it's, it's so true. I mean, it, again, you go to the make America great again thing. It's like, no, it, it was fundamentally broken before mm-hmm. COVID showed up and, and exposed everything. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about, because we've tried to look, we, we are two, uh, middle-class, uh, straight white guys. There couldn't be more privilege on planet earth. Um, and so we try to recognize that, but also have, have folks on, uh, like yourself who, who, who look and have different experiences than, than we do. Certainly. I mean, besides the fact that you have like 30 years of medical training, besides <laughs> those details, I'm close. Um, I'm getting close to my 30 it, years of I, medical experience. Yeah. Brian, Brian, <laughs> oh, that's sorry, not sorry. this conversation, bud. Okay. Um, so, but, but one of the things we, we, we have, uh, always tried to point out and certainly over the past year tried to do a much better job of is to, to, uh, to, to help people understand and to say out loud that, uh, you know, the, the inequities in really any of America's systems, Mm -hmm. uh, they are not broken. They were, they were designed this way. Mm -hmm. They they are designed in a, in a very racist, unequal way. And, and I want to talk about how, uh, with you a little bit about how that leads to the healthcare system that Mm -hmm. is also not necessarily broken. It is designed to be reactive and and procedure and and profit based so like you said uh, obamacare is a huge step forward but you know and it was imperfect from the start mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons um right. uh, but it was far better than the previous situation mm-hmm. um now you know trump has spent 4 years trying to destroy it and might that might happen in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but but at the same time there's still millions of people with no health care mm-hmm. or, or that they don't know what's included in, in Medicaid or they're just lied to. And so they don't go to annual checkups. They have tons of underlying conditions because of all the toxic air they're exposed to. So adults get chest pains or they're a young, you know, Latino kid or black kid with asthma. And mm-hmm. so they go to the emergency room, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a cardiopulmonary right. person that they see frequently to check on their asthma. Right. Um, or they don't, like you said, the young woman with cancer, they don't go those first few times because they fear those bills or they they blow it off like people do. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the emergency room. And as wonderful 
uh, as emergency room doctors and nurses and staff are. It is a massive expense, not only on the system, obviously, but mm -hmm. on the person. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you can talk about how, how we translate and pivot from this from from this reactive procedure profit based system to something that is like you said solution based that is preventative mm -hmm. and and we are treating you know we're we are supporting health instead of constantly treating disease something that is value driven yeah well that's a great question and you know we talk about this a lot in um in in medical circles about moving away from procedure and the number of interventions that tend to drive mm -hmm. right revenue, and that's considered somehow the um, the value of or, or the significance, right, of any medical institution. And that's why a lot of hospitals have struggled financially during the, this pandemic, is because there were a lot of elective procedures, surgeries that were put off, right, or canceled and delayed, and that was their major revenue stream. And all of a sudden, we're realizing how important it is to go back to that value based you know, template of, of medicine. And, and so I, I love the fact that you mentioned preventative care, right? Quinn? because look, we, mm -hmm. we have to, we spend, so in, in our country, right, we spend more than $10,000 per capita, right? So per individual on healthcare every year, which is almost twice as much as the next closest industrialized nation. And we do not, let's be very clear. We do not have better outcomes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, a large proportion of our healthcare dollars are spent in those final weeks of life, right? They're spent in the ICUs, mm -hmm. they're spent in, you know, experimental treatments and, you know, those, those Hail Mary passes in some ways, right? It's just like that, you know, those extreme measures, right? Um, imagine, and I'm not saying critical care isn't important. Of course it is. And if sometimes it makes all the difference in the world, but imagine if we took a portion of that and we used it more proactively in those early years and we used it more in prevention, we used it more in education, we used it more in, mm. in, uh, uh, in nutrition. In, right. And so, and so one of the things, uh, I wanted to, to highlight is especially from the emergency, uh, medicine physicians perspective is we see firsthand all those social determinants of health come to play. If you've heard that term before, mm -hmm. social determinants of health, it's about housing security. Sure. It's about, you know, food security. It's about education, um, you know, access to healthcare, access to clean water and clean air. It's about, you know, educational resources. It's about all of that, right? Well, we see where all of those um, uh, inequities come to uh, fruition, right? When for example, mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned like a, a young, say a young uh, child, a young African-American kid who's got asthma, right? Now mm -hmm. he lives in, you know, assuming a, a lot of these social uh, determinants, like maybe they live in a, uh, a congested apartment complex, right? They're in a, in a small uh, uh, apartment, uh, several family members. They live in a community that is near, you know, uh, a, you know, smokestacks, right? They don't have necessarily clean air. Uh, to breathe. Sure. There's also uh, a less quality education this child might be receiving, right? The the family mm -hmm. is economically struggling. They don't have food uh, security, or maybe they live in a food desert where, you know, all the parents can access is certain kinds of foods. They're just trying to keep their family alive, but they may not be the healthiest, right? They don't, mm -hmm. they can't take the time off to, um, you know, drive across town to get the fresh produce. Uh, they don't have a vehicle. Um, they just, they're already living at this incredible like deficit, right? And then on top of sure. it, 
you put the fact that they can't access regular health care. So this kid can't go in for his preventative uh, appointments. They may not be able to afford his inhalers, or they may even ration that inhaler to only use when he's really struggling. He can't stay away from smoke because that's in his air all around him. Um, you know, they can't have all the hypoallergenic bedding and clothing and different detergent for him because they just can't afford that. So this child will have a perpetual struggle for so many reasons. So all of those social determinants of health impact that one child. Now magnify that to millions of families, millions of kids, millions of parents out there. That's what we're dealing with. So we can't look at this as just, you know, people talk about how our healthcare system is just simply having an insurance card, right? And therefore you have access to healthcare. That's not it. It's about education. It's about housing. It's about economic equity. It's about um, mm-hmm. uh, resources, you know, having food security, uh, having clean air, clean water, uh, clean playgrounds and safe areas to play and run. And it's about all those things that we just, uh, sure. you know, downplay. We don't take those factors into account. And so you could send a kid like a family like that, a health insurance card. That's not necessarily going to lead to a better outcome. You have to address all those factors if you really want to improve that child's quality of life. Uh, absolutely, and I, I've been I've been thinking a lot and, and trying to talk about a lot as much as I can. Uh, you said healthcare determinants, and another word I've been using is externalities, and and how we we uh, as as uh, you know people with a microphone and legislators and everyone needs to be thinking about these. Whether it's literally like. You want to talk about the stock market? Fine. Let's talk about like what what are these things actually exposed to? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's the same sort of mind map like you said for a a young black kid uh, with asthma because if you if you reverse engineer all of those health determinants like you said all of those all every single one of those things that he or she is exposed to was a decision that that has been made in a systemic way in our society and he was or she was always going to be exposed to those things mm-hmm. uh there was always going to be a food desert their best options were uh a pharmacy or a or a, a dollar store and mm-hmm. at some point that stuff adds up and like you said it, it just it requires comprehensive change. It requires mm-hmm. uh, upturning the entire thing. We can't just give them a health card because you still haven't fixed anything else yet. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, I've uh, as emergency physicians, I, I think, especially as fem- women, I think there's certain, you know, skills that we have that I think make, make our voices essential to uh, thoughtful evidence-based pro- policies I, I did a, a talk at uh, an organization called Feminem, their their national conference last year, and Feminem stands for you know women in emergency medicine, and um, and the the topics are, are my my uh, my talk that the title was uh, empathy, equity, and empowerment, and mm-hmm. and why I bring that up is because I think it is that perspective um, that allows us to understand how those three things can be utilized to uh, improve these uh, situations, these uh, social determinants of health. I mean, empathy, number one, is obviously just being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, you know, and and that has to be something that can be done rapidly. I mean, you think about in the emergency department, right? You don't have this long-term rapport with somebody, right? You're not, you don't have the, it's not a family doctor. I've been seeing them for 20 years. I know their family. They come in, they're in a bad moment, a dire crisis, and you have to establish trust 
very quickly so that they will mm-hmm. tell you everything that's going on so that they trust you to take care of them the best way you know how and that you actually have all the information you need to do your job. And that takes empathy. And people understand when you truly care. They understand when you are empathic. They, they know when you're actually listening. So, you, you know, I think that is something inherently strong in that field. But I, I, I happen to think women have that skill pretty, uh, you know, sometimes better honed. No, no offense to uh, you men. Oh, oh, please. No, no. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's cr- I mean, it's great. Like it's, this is what we've, we've been saying. It's like, look, older white men have had their shot. Like at this point, the statistics have bared it out. Like yeah. it didn't work out. Every, yeah. <laughs> like we're all locked in our houses here. Like yeah. it's not great. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> right. so <laughs> that's a great whether point. <laughs> it's, whether it's proven that women have the empathy, empathy gene or not, which I'm pretty sure it has, like yeah. it's gotta be markedly better yeah. than the alternative, which is just like, again, we're locked inside and the sea yeah. levels are rising. It's uh. not going Great. Yeah. Um, well, then that's good. Then you give me that opening to just say we are just more empathic. So, and you know, then it's about the the addressing the inequities, right? Understanding the differences um, of you know when you could have two like this child with asthma. You could have two children who come in with asthma, but their their outcomes will be radically different based on all those other factors, right? Do they have, you know, health insurance, but do they have a parent that can be at home with them if they get sick? Do they have access to, you know, clean air? Can they afford their medications? Do the parents, are the parents adequately educated on, you know, the warning signs to watch out for when to bring their child in? Um, Are they living in a home where they can, you know, have um, the child with, you know, a HEPA filter to clean the air and and so the child can have, Mm -hmm. you know... All of those, right? Those factors have to be considered. You can't treat those two children exactly the same. If you do, you are, you know, committing blatant, like ignorant malpractice in some ways because you know you can't send them home with the same discharge plan. One is working with an entirely different set of variables. And, uh, and so, and then that's where the empowerment then comes in is then helping them find those resources, right? We, we inherently, like I, you wouldn't send home a patient like that like that child with asthma, the African-American kid, if he did not have access to all those resources, you know, that's where you stop and you get the, the department social worker and you talk to them about getting into the Medicaid program, making sure they have WIC, making sure uh, they understand they use the inhaler, making sure that they uh, have the educational resources, you know, helping them figure out how to eat healthy, all of those things. Uh, that is just something we are more in tune to. And that is how you deliver better comprehensive care. And that's how we have to approach the whole constellation of problems that you cannot just put a Band-Aid on it or put a, a single like, you know, solution on this. This is a multifactorial problem that, like you said, has existed for, for you know, decades, if not centuries. And we got to peel it apart. We got to find all those core weaknesses and fracture lines and discriminatory practices or injustices and we got to rebuild so it is more equitable across the line and i'll tell you that's an investment in our collective well-being that is going to not only help us keep our fellow human beings safer and healthier and happier and more productive but it's going to be economically better for our nation as well because we spend so much of our healthcare dollars as an afterthought you know retroactively trying to put out the fires yeah, I, 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 it, it makes a lot of. I mean, it clearly just makes so much. It's one of those things where you're just banging your head against the wall. So, so hard. Like, uh, how, so many how, times. Uh, 
how are we not seeing this? It's 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 crazy. The president goes to a hospital mm. that is literally designed for him, mm. and you know leaves forty eight hours later. Meanwhile, I, I mean, you you have spent some time, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, on a, a board of directors for your uh, mm-hmm. the county's uh, public health care system. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, yep. So there was there was just some news uh, recently uh, uh, re- regarding a system like that, but in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, great great article in the L.A. Times. Uh, and just to, to quote it here, because I, I was just thinking about this this week, um, uh, they discovered that in, in L.A.'s uh, public health care uh, mm-hmm. system, the average wait uh, in that system to see a specialist was 89 days, mm. according to a Times wow. data analysis of more than 860,000 requests for specialty care at the L.A. County Department of Health Services, a sprawling safety net system that you know, again, to editorialize, like serves more than 2 million people. Like it's mm-hmm. huge. It's complex. Los Angeles is 88 cities, right? right whatever. Serving again, the region's poorest and most vulnerable residents. But th- they made a point to talk about s- so many of these folks didn't wait the whole 89 days because they just died. Yeah. Man. They just didn't make it there. And, yeah. and so I, I fully understand. I mean, we, when we're, whether we're talking about the VA, which by the way, those numbers are actually worse than the VA, which is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But Look, public health is always been Byzantine, right? And mm-hmm. and by a lot of folks, relatively ignored. You've got these healthcare startups, and that's all great. But like, we have to fix this vitally important infrastructure mm-hmm. among our increasingly urbanized cities and and counties. Um, and yet, for a lot of folks, I feel like until they started following forty epidemiologists on Twitter this year, uh, their understanding of public health is like limited to to flu shots and and mm-hmm. vaccinating their kids. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the practicalities of that work is like for you, why that's important to you, I guess, how that translates both to other counties, but also on a, on a more federal level. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, our County health system, um, is it's like in a perpetual state of struggle, right. To obtain adequate funding. Um, our, the population of Maricopa County has grown, um, so rapidly that we are now the fourth, uh, I think Dense's fourth largest county in the nation. Um, wow. wow. And yeah. And, and I mean, I've been here for 24 plus years uh, in Arizona. And I mean, it, it's amazing the amount of growth, right? Like where I live, um, probably about a mile uh, north of me, beyond that was all orange groves and desert. Now you could drive for 40 miles and there's neighborhood after neighborhood mm-hmm. after little town after, you know, I mean, the growth has been exponential. So uh, that being said, our county healthcare system um, has struggled to keep up, right? In our, in our, in our densest areas, um, we have, you know, tried to expand those services. And I'm really proud of the fact that a a couple years back, we passed a a very huge uh, ballot initiative that, you know, every Maricopa County resident voted for that funded a, a huge expansion of our county hospital. So that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still, uh, it's been expanded. Uh, it's been reopened with this new name. They're still, you know, tweaking and, and, and still adding on a few things. They've also, I'm really proud to say this, they've also put out these satellite family and community health centers, which I think that is the big piece that is missing for a lot of hospitals because you can't just have this one centralized hospital, right? You've got communities where, you know, people may not have transportation. They may just not know, like, how do I, you know, get care there? But a lot of it is also about representation. When you have community medical centers in 
these, uh, you know, these more, uh, you know, uh, Latinx communities, for example, uh, mm-hmm. and you have healthcare providers who speak Spanish fluently. They are very well versed in certain cultural uh, behaviors and things like that. That's where people are going to go. That's where they're going to feel a sense of trust and understanding. And that's where they're more likely to be compliant with medical uh, direction and guidance, right? And that's where you're going to get better outcomes. So we have to have more of those community health centers that actually feel like they're ingrained into the community, that they are a, a place where people are uh, feel more at home, more comfortable. They, they're they more trusting. And I, I tell you, I mean, there's been, you know, data on this, right? There have been, there's been study after study on healthcare disparities and shows that one of the two, actually two of the factors that really help is number one, having more of those in uh, on the ground community health centers, but number two is having more diversity in those healthcare professionals, right? So if you walk sure. in and you see uh, nurses and lab techs and doctors that look more like your community, you're more likely to go there when you need medical care. You're more likely to follow their guidance. You're more likely to bring your family members and, you know, anybody else who's sick and it just leads to better outcomes. So I'm so proud of our healthcare, of our County healthcare system, Maricopa County um, uh, medical center, which is now called Valley wise uh, medical center, but they have invested in those community medical uh, community health centers, which are going to make a huge impact. And the other area where it really helps too is with mental health services and dealing with, uh, issues of addiction, uh, because, you know, historically, right. There's all the stigma that goes along with that. Uh, people are less likely to pursue that. Nobody's going to drive 20 miles when they just don't think they're going to get the the respect and the care and the kindness that they, they, you know, that they deserve. But if there's a health center in their own community and they get the word of mouth that there's, you know, these are people that, you know, you'll be able to relate to and connect with they're more likely to mm-hmm. seek care. They're more likely to seek those services. And sure. and that just, you know, all of that is just positive uh, feedback into those communities that just leads to a, you know, long-term better outcomes. So it's a, it, that investment by our, our ValleyWise Health Center, I think is just uh, not just a very thoughtful data-driven investment, but it's going to lead to such uh, improvement in health outcomes for so many members of the community that have been in dire need for good medical care for far too long. I mean, it makes sense, right? It comes down to trust. And and if you are a person of color in America, I, I understand fully if you why why you would not trust your local healthcare systems, which blow people blow even white people in and out the door uh, so quickly these days. Much less. Uh, a black, brown, or in, indigenous person—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's crazy. I think about in right here in Virginia. There's a gentleman uh, running for Congress in Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dr. Cameron Webb. Yeah, and he—he he would be, and and this is kind of taking like you were just saying this this trust, this representation thing to the next level in a moment where so many people don't know whether to trust mm-hmm. COVID messaging, right? right? And yet black, brown, indigenous people are suffering just vastly worse than others. Right. You've got before COVID. I think black moms die at something like the, their mortality rates like three times right. uh, w- white moms. And yet at the same time, w- uh, Dr. Webb would be the first black doctor mm-hmm. in Congress. And, and just what is that? I mean, that is measurable. That's huge. That matters so much. I think it his does. wife is also emergency room physician, which is just like overachievers. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, but, it, but that matters on, it I'm sure it has mattered in his community mm-hmm. and, and her community. Mm-hmm. And it, it will matter so much to have someone mm-hmm. that, she frankly looks like mm-hmm. that 
helping with that messaging and someone like you yeah. who has spent, and I know uh, you, you were, I believe, uh, uh, not born here. You, you came here, but it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. There, there will be people who look up to you who are getting news from Facebook and mm -hmm. Instagram in a 40 different ways, but, but, but they can, they, I, I think they will feel like they can trust you and that not just because of your work, you know, that just, that it just matters. It just matters. And we're mm -hmm. just not doing a good enough job with a Congress that's full of white lawyers. Yeah, no, and that's why we need more diverse voices, right, in D.C. at all levels, and not just in D.C. at all levels of government. I mean, whether it's city councils and school boards, you know, or, or all the way up to the White House, we need more diverse um, uh, leaders and voices. And when you think about it, it you it it's 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 common sense, right, to understand that that will lead to richer more thoughtful, uh, more comprehensive and robust policies. If you have a table, and I, I think you probably remember, right? We saw this uh, picture of, uh, I think it was like 12 white men around a table that were discussing uh, women's reproductive health rights. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, just yeah. Jesus. I mean, it's comical, right? I mean, that that's almost like it, you couldn't have staged that any worse. But think about if you have, you're talking about, say, education. Let's take something even different than healthcare. Education. And you put around that table, you put uh, teachers, you put uh, principals, you put a school psychologist, you put parents who've seen their child struggle in different school settings, public, charter, private, whatever. You have students who are now adults who have gone through you know, turmoil at different levels of education. Um, and then you have that, that richness of dialogue, right, at that table. Think about the education policies that will come out of that group. It will be comprehensive. It will be thoughtful. It will address so many of those otherwise forgotten variables. And that will be robust policy that will not only have long-lasting benefit, but will more likely have a chance to also receive bipartisan support because it represents such a wide swath of our population. Sure. So we need that for everything. We need that for healthcare. We need that. And that's important. I mean, I'm not going to, why, like, I'm not going to decide how to do, you know, work on a plumbing project without talking to a plumber. Like, why would you discuss healthcare without having doctors at the table, without having patients, without having nurses? I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense. And that's what we have right now. So yeah, we need Cameron. He's fantastic. Um, I am cheering him on. He's, uh, he and I have, you know, been doing a lot of events, uh, virtually together because I don't think there's been a time, a moment that, uh, we need more voices like, like his and, and mine and so many other scientists and physicians who are hoping to bring their data-driven approach their empathy and their problem-solving skills to, to Washington. Yeah. And, and I, I think it just makes it personal for, for, for voters and constituents, um, to feel like there's there's somebody that they can identify with mm -hmm. because so often that just isn't. And I think that was part of the disappointment uh, of of Biden being the choice for a lot of folks. It's like, it's just the same. He's going to be great, but it's just the same thing when we have opportunities to have folks like yourselves um, yeah. out there and standing in for people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll share a, a really brief story here. Um, when I first started running, I was... Um, you know, there's some uh, like neighborhood community. It was like an Indian, it was like an India day or something. It was like celebrating Indian culture and food and everything, right? So it was at this outdoor park in, in Scottsdale and there was uh, all these booths set up and, you know, some booths, you know, you'd go to get a little Indian snack or they would have henna painting or 
whatever. So anyways, I had my booth there for my congressional campaign just to talk to people in the community and hear about the issues that, you know, matter to their families. And so I was kind of walking around, strolling around, just, you know, doing the, you know, meet and greet kind of thing. And this was obviously before COVID. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and as I start coming back around the circle, back to my booth, there's a little girl who's standing at the side of it, little Indian girl. She was about nine years old. And, you know, I just see her standing there. And then as I'm walking towards her, she, uh, catches my eye and she runs to me, runs to me just, you know, with just this, like her eyes light up and she comes to me and she gives me a big hug, just wraps her arms around me tightly. And she's just like, Dr. Hero, Dr. Hero. And I, you know, didn't know her. And she was just the sweet girl who was hugging me. And then she's like, she takes my hand. She goes, I want to take you to see my parents. I want to take you to see my parents. And so there's this couple that's standing on the other side of the booth that was talking to some of my staff. So she drags me over to them and she mm. like presents me to her parents. And she says to her mom, and I'll never forget this. She tells, presents to her mom see mom, I could be this. I could be Dr. Hero. Doesn't get better than that. And I, you know, I mean, tears came to my eyes. Her, the mom gave me a big hug. The dad gave me a big hug. And she just kept, this little girl's just jumping up and down. Like I could be a doctor. I could run for Congress. I could be a leader. And it's, it was, it was exactly that. What you guys said is when you see, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Right. And for this sure. little girl, she was just marveling at the fact that there was a, a brown woman that was a physician that was hoping to, to be a voice in Congress. And it made all difference for her. And that is critical for every kid out there. Every young person should be able to look at that composite of our leadership in our most, you know, stately halls, uh, whether it's at our state capitals, you know, town um, you know, city halls or in DC and be able to find people in that composite picture that look like them, that tell them you too can be here. You, you should be here. Your voice is important here. I love that. Holy yeah. cow. That must've been a nice moment. It, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, There's a lot of tears. Yeah. But we were just, <laughs> I bet. It was just a big group, group bear hug. <laughs> we're, we're fans uh, of tears. I remember here. hugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Those were nice. Yeah, that's all pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, Hero, I, I want to ask you about your your history a bit. Um, Quinn and I are are very big supporters of of cancer research and treatment efforts. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. cancer seems to have been a, a major part of of your life. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about what cancer has taken from you and and, and where it, it has taken you? Yeah. No. Absolutely. So. You know, and it's one of these things, right? As a physician, somehow, I don't know why you think it's not going to hit your family yeah. because somehow you think because I'm a doctor that I, I don't know, it's, it's irrational thinking, but, uh, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, you know, my, my whole world fell apart, right? I had just become a new mom. Um, my oldest was, uh, she would have been eight months old at the time when my mom was diagnosed and, uh, and you know, my mom was like this healthy picture of perfect, like, you know, health practices. You know, she walked three miles a day. She never ate meat. She never smoked. She never drank alcohol. You know, she was just as healthy as could be. Yeah. Like you would never. And, but obviously we know that that doesn't mean anything. Right. But anyway, so yeah, she was diagnosed with cancer. 
Um, and after initially getting uh, what we thought was cured, her cancer came back uh, with a vengeance. It, 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 uh, her body was riddled with meds. It was primarily in her liver. She underwent a liver resection. That was not successful. And just as we were about to initiate some experimental therapy on her, um, she, her liver just collapsed. She went into full hepatic failure and she ended up passing away fairly quickly. Um, and it was, you know, one of those things where, again, like I had access, right, to amazing resources. I yeah. mean, my parents had good health insurance. My dad was still working. But, uh, or I'm sorry, no, they were probably on, oh, no, they were on COBRA because my dad had retired, but they weren't on Medicare yet. So they were on COBRA. But anyways, they were covered. I had obviously, you know, the ability to reach out to specialists all around the country, which I did. To, to tap into some clinical trials and find out this and that and navigate through our healthcare system just because, you know, I had more understanding of it. But, uh, you know, uh, she eventually succumbed to uh, the cancer. And then just uh, a couple years after that, um, my nephew, uh, who uh, at the time when he was diagnosed, he was six, he turned seven shortly thereafter, uh, was diagnosed with ALL, with uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia. and um, and of all the childhood leukemias, if this sounds awful, right? Of all the childhood cancers, yeah. like this is the one like you, you would prefer to have because it's got such a high cure rate. It's got a really good prognosis. Um, as it turns out, my nephew had a very rare form of it. His, uh, he had a certain cell receptor type that made it completely resistant. He never went into initial remission at all. So he ended up, you know, being this incredibly rare case of a, highly virulent, uh, untreatable form of ALL to the point where he ended up needing, uh, experimental treatments, uh, very, you know, toxic, uh, chemo combinations. And ultimately it was decided that he would need a bone marrow transplant. Well, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with like the, the national, uh, bone marrow registry. For sure. Yeah. But that's, uh, you know, the NMDP, uh, national marrow donor program. But anyways, uh, so here's this Indian kid, right, who needs a bone marrow transplant. Well, guess what? When they looked for matches for him, they didn't find any 10 out of 10 matches. Uh, the kid, <sighs> and, and this is interesting, right? The kid in the room right next door, very similar. Uh, he had a different form. I think he had AML, which tra traditionally needs a bone marrow transplant. But so he had seven pages of matches, 10 out of 10. Wow. Right. Like seven. Yeah. Like, and on every page, there was like 20 matches. So we're talking like maybe 140, 150 matches that he could have potentially gotten marrow from my nephew had zero, zero. So, and of course this is after, you know, everybody in our family got tested to see if we right. could match. Like I think the highest, highest we got was a seven out of 10. And, and for people listening, I mean, the 10 out of 10 just means that all these different markers are met so that there's less of a chance of rejection. And there's, you know, a good chance mm -hmm. of actually, uh, um, responding to that. So ultimately we had to do a whole summer full of bone marrow drives, right? Where we were in, we had family and friends, a network all across the country that set up these drives to get people of South Asian descent to register in the bone marrow registry so that we could ultimately find a match for him. Um, we ended up, uh, bringing in thousands of South Asians into the registry, thankfully, but unfortunately, uh, the highest he got was still, a. Uh, a seven or an eight out of 10. So ultimately he ended up getting a, um, fetal cord blood transplant, which, uh, we were just grateful to get again. It was not a 10 out of 10. 
he got that um, in June. So he was diagnosed in March. He got that in June and he did not make it to a hundred days um, post-transplant as far as, um, as far as uh, recovery. His uh, leukemia came back with a vengeance prior to day 100, and he ended up passing away that November. So it was like an eight-month course, um, which, is, which was just horrific. Uh, so he was seven when he passed. And um, oh my God. yeah, so, and I'll tell you what that did is, uh, I mean, after that, after losing him, uh, you know, we had just lost my mom and, uh, you know, all I wanted to do was stay home and just hug my children. Yeah. Like I just did not want to like leave them for a second. Right. And my kids at that time were fairly young. Um, and so I, I just took some time off work and I just wanted to like sit there and snuggle them tight and not let them go. Um, and then I went back to clinical practice for a while and it was just emotionally it was it was taking a toll on me i couldn't walk into a kid's room without breaking down into tears which was you know they teach you in medical school to have this uh professional emotional distance right because you cannot get drained by every encounter right because obviously that can take that can suck the the life out of you and it can really impact your ability to be professional and do your job and uh, but it was just too soon or it was just too harsh. So, um, anyways, I took some time off and then I, I learned about an incredible opportunity to work, uh, to use my skills in cancer research advocacy, where I could help bring, uh, research a- and the funding agencies together for childhood leukemias, breast cancer, prostate cancer. Those are the areas that I kind of focused on and help vet the science, make sure that it was really impactful research, and then make sure we funded it. And it delivered, you know, uh, real results for people going through uh, cancer and their families. And to me, it just felt like uh, it was an amazing chance for me to honor my my mom and my nephew's memories and to hopefully be able to alleviate a similar burden off of other families that our family had gone through. Thank you so much for sharing that, first of all. Uh, Terribly... Sorry I think it's so losses. clear, like whether it's this subject, no matter the subject, you know, we're big believers that numbers and data and all that is great, but no, it's, it's personal stories that, that get people to uh, connect. So we very much appreciate you sharing that, doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, <clears throat> we're not at all. We're, we, we've both uh, got some, com, cause some, some, unfortunately, some connections to, to cancer and, and, mm-hmm. and not nearly to the, certainly the professional extent that you do, but it is, it has galvanized us and um, yeah. uh, needs all the help it can get. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason, right? We're right. all vulnerable and that's why we have to, sure. and that's why it's important to invest in research. We have to make sure like NIH funding is preserved, yes. um, making, making sure we have uh, you know, we're, we're able to get that, those amazing researchers to, uh, to be able to do the work so that we can actually really improve the lives of people going through treatment, uh, early diagnosis, you know, maybe genetic testing, personalized therapies, just, you know, there's so many things we can do to improve the quality of life for people who are going through, uh, cancer. And certainly the ultimate goal would obviously to be find cures. And, um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, uh, it, I just remember my nephew, 
you know, it forced him to like grow up very quickly, right? To yeah. be in a hospital and be surrounded by adults all the time and all this talk about very complex medical things. And I'll tell you, there's one day where I remember, you know, taking him for a little stroll with his IV pole out in the courtyard of the hospital. And I had to sort of explain to him why his ALL, why his leukemia was not going into remission. And, um, and I told him, well, you know, it's a, it's just a, you got a special form of ALL. You got a special form of leukemia. It's not, it's not typical. And, um, so we got to find a special treatment, you know, and, uh, and, you know, where he could have said, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, he was seven, right? Anything he would have said would have been acceptable at that point. But what he said to me was, well, maybe, you know, if, if they can figure out what might work for me, then, you know, maybe uh, it'll help other kids so they don't even have to get it in the first place. Wow. And, you know, and it's just, Ugh. it just makes you realize, Ugh. like... Can I add, I'm so curious about the, the, you said that the 10 out of 10 and the 7, you know, when you were when talking about the bone marrow, what, what are those, mm-hmm. what, 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 why can one person have 150 matches and one person have zero? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So, I mean, obviously, look, our South Asian population, although it is a, a decent proportion in many communities across our country, we're certainly still very much a minority, right? Yeah. So, first of all, just if you look at the number of people that are in our national marrow uh, registry, the vast majority are Caucasians, right? They're they're your average white American person. Um, and so, South Asians, um, even African Americans, uh, certainly Hispanic Americans, all of those folks are less likely to find matches specifically because there's just less of us. Okay. But also because I think it's just something that I think we have to educate these communities on. You know, we have to make sure that people know that there is this thing called this registry. It's just like, you know, we know about blood blood drives, right? Blood donation, making sure that there are blood types that match certain people. Well, we need to make sure people understand that for bone marrow transplants, there has to be matching um, as well. And that requires knowing what what donors are out there. So, and it's simple now, right? I mean, it used to be where they had to take blood. Now it's a swab. Oh, wow. Um, so it's really simple. And uh, there's, uh, if you go to, you know, marrow.org, www.marrow.org, that is the NMDP website. It has all sorts of great information. And for anybody out there who's listening, who is not on the marrow registry, whether you're South Asian, African-American, Hispanic, uh, white, whatever, please uh, get yourself in that registry because uh, this is the silver lining here, right, guys, is that from Rajan's, um, from the uh, marrow drives that we did for my nephew, Rajan, uh, we've had, we've learned of dozens of matches that have come from that, that have made, you know, that have saved people's lives. A cousin of mine actually uh, was wow. able to to give his marrow to a girl who was suffering from aplastic anemia and saved her life. I am. So oh, man. this work that was done, you know, in Rajan's name has left a legacy of hope and of, you know, life-saving intervention. So if that's one public service announcement, please, everybody become part of the registry. Yeah, you can so save great. a life. Awesome. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, something so special about, about somebody who's who's not only working on the front lines, but, but trying to pay it forward, you know, and, um, you've worked with the social, uh, the, the society of research administrators international and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like through that you've, you've spent much of the past decade just trying to train the next generation of, of research and data scientists. Is that right? 
Because if so, we'd like to be some flies on the wall uh, when you explain that to the current White House. (laughs) Yeah, it's really about um, understanding the value of good science, right? And understanding like how to how to put together like good, effective research. Because look, there are there's there are amazing bench researchers and clinical researchers out there, and uh, there's no shortage of of need for all of those projects. But there's clear difference in the impact, right, of certain work over other work, and that's the that's the element that we always sort of emphasize. The two things are innovation and impact, right? So let's find new creative ways to solve these problems. And then let's really figure out if that's going to make an impact in people's lives, because there's some research that's fantastically interesting, but it's not going to actually change anybody's life. Right. Like it might be fascinating to us as scientists and it might, you know, make the cover of time magazine or scientific American, but what's it going to do to somebody's quality of life? Who's dealing with that illness. Right. Right. And so it's not just about the innovation. You have to have innovation and impact. And when those two things are high quality in research, those are the kind of research projects that, uh, you know, we tend to lean uh, into funding, making sure we follow those, uh, you know, those milestones, you know, whether it's two years, three years, five year projects and really see how they come to fruition because, um, we want to make sure that we're incentivizing those researchers to do that work. And, and I mean, we're talking about really like cutting edge stuff, right? Like uh, exciting experimental therapeutics, uh, early diagnostic tools, you know, genetic markers, um, just so many things that we can um, really develop that would make huge uh, progress in cancer therapy, cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment. But at the end of the day, it's about improving the quality of life of people who are going through it. And, uh, you know, when you know that you can help somebody while they're getting chemo to be able to still like, you know, live a good quality of life, uh, that's everything Everything. to that family. That's everything. That's everything. Yeah. We are all about that. So, um, yeah. So yeah, that's what we gotta, we gotta keep, we got a lot of work to do guys. We got a lot of work to do. Love it. Let's do it. We're here. We're here for it. We got. We got to. Yeah. Well, um, I'm getting the uh, the hook from my uh, my wonderful Hannah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, We can wrap it up here. No, Hannah's always trying to get us out of here. It's fine. (laughs) We understand. Um, We just want to do our most important part here, which is uh, talk about the action steps that people can take here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brian, go for it. Like I said at the top, you know, our our goal is to to to. Find specific action steps that we can take that our listeners can take. The the important action oriented questions we can ask um, that that help support you. Um, so uh, so let's get in on that because this election is already underway uh, with early voting yeah. having started in Arizona. Right. Um, so let's start with their voice. Uh, what are the big actionable and specific questions that we should all be asking of of our representatives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so early voting starts tomorrow. Okay, actually. tomorrow. Got so uh, because well, this, is we just, this yeah. will come out in a week. Oh, so oh I'm sorry. Okay, okay. This is basically <laughs> a time machine. You're in the time so. machine. <laughs> I'm in the future. I did not realize that. <laughs> so okay. sorry. So yes, so sorry. October seventh was the beginning of early voting. There you Boom. go. There we go. Um, and that's when early ballots were mailed. And <laughs> um, and exciting news, by the way, for everybody in Arizona is that they extended the voter registration deadline to the 23rd of October. So the 23rd of October is now the deadline. So anybody who's out there has not registered to vote. Somebody, anybody who's turning 18 up to November 3rd can register to vote. 
um, early, you know, if they're going to turn, um, if they're going to turn 18 in that time, but please, everybody needs to be registered to vote. Your vote matters. Your vote counts. I want everyone to know that, uh, you know, um, the procedure of voting is being done so thoughtfully with our County recorder, with our secretary of state here in Arizona, make sure that, you know, you, uh, when you get your early ballots in the mail, you fill them out promptly, you send them back. There's a texting system in place that'll tell you when your ballot was received, when your signature was verified. So that means your vote was counted. Um, so you can sign up for that through the recorder's office. Um, but we just want to make sure. Yeah. And, and if you go in person, there are multiple early in-person voting stations all around the county and the state. There's a listing of that. Yes, we're going to make sure that obviously everybody wears a mask. Uh, you know, they will be doing it very cautiously using all appropriate public health guidelines, but you can go safely. And we anticipate because there's so many of those days and stations set around that we shouldn't have lines or large congregations of people, hopefully. And, you know, Arizona, we have over 80% of our electorate votes by mail, uh, early voting. So, um, you yeah, know, wow. I, yeah. And 80%? Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. We are, we're leaders in this and we've honestly done a pretty kick-ass job of it. Uh, I am very proud of our state and, um, and that number is growing. So I'm sure after this, you know, next, uh, election, we'll see a higher number, but yeah, we've been doing it for over 20 years and doing it very well, I think. So, um, I want everyone to have faith in the system to make sure you vote, fill out your ballots, get to the, polling stations if you're not on the early um the pebble but please please vote and make sure you research your candidates and make sure you know where they stand and how they have voted or what they propose to do on the issues that matter to your families and if healthcare is number one uh you know be aware that there are there are people out there like my opponent who are right now signed on to a Supreme Court case that will go in front of SCOTUS on November 10th to fully repeal the ACA and leave people with pre-existing conditions high and dry. Um, so vote like your life depends on it. I'm not saying that hyperbolically. Your, our health, our well-being, our children's well-being, their futures depends on this election. Vote like it does because that is the reality we're in. Um, if anybody would like to volunteer for our campaign, uh, they can send an email to field, F-I-E-L-D, at herald, the number four, congress.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We have an amazing follower uh, following on Facebook and on Twitter, on Instagram. Share, retweet, repost, uh, join the conversation. We want to hear your thoughts. Um, and just tell your friends about, about our campaign. And then tell your friends about important candidates that are running in your communities, like Dr. Cameron Webb. We want to make sure we get all of these fantastic candidates up and down the ballots across the nation elected so we can get to work on these important issues and, uh, and, and just do better by our fellow Americans. I, I, that's tremendous. Thank you. And, and what is the URL for your campaign so people can just yeah, throw can dollars throw at it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Contributions are always welcome. Uh, it does mm -hmm. take, it takes resources to not only, you know, Pay my amazing staff and keep a great Hannah's got to eat. Hannah's gotta eat. Right. We gotta keep a roof over Hannah's head. And uh and and more importantly, or not more importantly, but importantly also is that getting our message out, which means we're sending out mailers sure. or we're on TV or you know, just uh we gotta get that message out to every nook and cranny of this district. So um you can uh look us up. It's my first name, Hirl, H-I-R-A-L, the word for F-O-R 
heroforcongress.com. Mm-hmm. So heroforcongress.com. Go to the website. We have the social media links there. There's a contribution link there. If anybody's in a district and wants a yard sign, if you want to uh, learn more about the issues, you want to see our endorsements, you want to see any interviews, it's all there. Um, and is there, are you guys doing phone banking? Can we do that yes, there? Yes, you can uh, sign awesome. up to volunteer. We have phone banking. We have text banking. I think we've written every postcard we can possibly write. Um, but my, <laughs> uh, my field team will get you hooked up with whatever you're able to do. Um, we are so, so grateful to every single amazing volunteer out there that has uh, helped our efforts because this is a winnable seat. I want everybody to understand this is within our reach. We're up in the polls, but we got to work hard to get this to the finish line. We got 28 days left. Um, and we're going to work our butts off every single day. And, uh, there's so much at stake. We, you know, we can't, we can't afford to, to leave anything, um, behind. We're going to leave it all, all out on the field, right? Is that the saying? Leave it all out Love on the it. field. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Let's go with it. That works. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hero, this has tremendous. been tremendous. We, we cannot thank you enough. No, you have to get out of here. Um, yeah. so thank you uh, for your time and all that you're doing and, uh, cannot wait to see you, uh, out there making, yes. making some change here. Thank you both. Thank you, Brian and Quinn, so much for this opportunity. It was really lovely to chat with you both. And uh, thanks for the work you're doing and getting these messages out and uh, sharing some you know, positive action items with the rest of, the, of our communities. We appreciate it. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. 